Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, uh, later in the podcast we have a big guest. We have one of the few American political diplomatic figures who has actually met with a North Korean dictator to talk about the back and forth on the summit. But before we get to that, there's a significant amount of political news that I wanted to talk about, including a, a big rally the president had down in Tennessee last night and some surprising comments that have come from some of his Republican allies. Yeah, in a template uh, of sorts in that Tennessee rally, uh, it was hard to tally up the falsehoods, the misstatements, the half-truths, The, it, but it did feel a lot like 2016 all over again. And the president uh, got that crowd going in Tennessee, uh, served notice to uh, any Democrats running, particularly in red states, that he is going to be there early and often. Uh, and he is painting uh, quite a portrait of the United States of America at this moment, an intriguing one that is really designed to get that base revved up. And and we're going to see this, I I think, from here until November. The president is going to go over and over and over again to deep red states that have Democrats up for re-election in the Senate. But I want to get, before we get to the political calculation here, the, the president has really worked over time to try to make the case that there was a spy, or sometimes he says spies, in his presidential campaign. You know, Watergate, they simply tried to bug the Democratic National Committee headquarters. He's trying to say that, in this case, the deep state, led by Barack Obama's administration, somehow tied with Hillary Clinton, inserted spies into his campaign. Um, Well, anyway, I want to get to the substance of that and what some, some very interesting comments that are coming from some of the president's own allies on this. But first, this is the way he put it at the rally last night in Tennessee. They had people infiltrating our campaign. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Well, I actually can't imagine. Um, Nor can I, John. Apparently, neither can some other folks. Uh, Last night on Fox News, uh, you've heard of Trey Gowdy? Mm Mm-hmm. Once or twice. Republican congressman from south carolina uh no card carrying member of either the deep state or of the uh you know i mean really of the republican establishment he's sure. the guy that led the the uh the benghazi hearing. and he's the chairman now of the oversight committee and he was invited in to this highly unusual briefing held last week where uh, the fbi was going to give information to a select group of lawmakers uh that uh, that would purport to prove the claim that President Trump has been going around making. He's been calling it Spygate. He says everyone's calling it Spygate. I actually don't think that's true. I think it's him calling it Spygate. Uh, and so Trey Gowdy knows more about this. I think Hannity this. called it Spygate. <laughs> oh, there, so that's the two then. Uh, Trey Gowdy knows more about this based on classified information than any of us here in the public. That's important context. Okay, so this was Trey Gowdy, Republican of South Carolina, head of the Oversight Committee, one of the few human beings who was actually in the classified briefing where the FBI laid all the cards on the table of what was going on uh, regarding the uh, the Russia investigation during the campaign. This is what Trey Gowdy had to say about so-called Spygate. I am even more convinced that the FBI did exactly what my fellow citizens would want them to do when they got the information they got, and that it has nothing to do with Donald Trump. And he went on at some length to say there was simply no evidence of, you know, spies in the campaign. But perhaps as interesting as what Trey Gowdy had to say, and basically just putting a stake in the heart 
of these claims by the president of Spygate was what was said by uh, Judge Napolitano, who, as we know, is uh, a, a fixture on Fox News, somebody the president has quoted many, 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 many times, somebody who has defended the president on virtually everything, even the wiretapping charges, you remember, uh, <laughs> about Trump Tower. Um, well, Judge Napolitano, after Gowdy said what he said, had this to say on Fox News. The allegations by Mayor Giuliani over the weekend which would lead us to believe that the Trump people think that the FBI had an undercover agent who inveigled his way into the campaign uh, and was there as a spy on the campaign seemed to be baseless. There's no evidence for that whatsoever. Baseless, no evidence whatsoever, and a great use of the underused word inveigled. Inveigled, inveigled. Yeah, look, what we do know here, based on public accounts, is that uh, when the FBI uh, had reason to believe that the Russians were trying to meddle with the with the election, uh, that they used confidential sources, informants, to try to interface with people in and around Donald Trump. That is a far cry from uh, placing a spy inside the, the, the Trump campaign. The president presumably knows all of this. He knows what the evidence is, what the evidence isn't. He's got his own people to inform him of that. He wasn't part of the briefing uh, directly. His people weren't part of the briefing directly, but he's got lots of ways to, to know or not know this. Still, he went out in Tennessee and said what he did last night, that they had people infiltrating our campaign. Flatly not true, based on any evidence that we have at the moment. And to me, John, it is a, a window into the president's psyche, uh, uh, because he either he knows this, and says this anyway and wants to get people whipped up for political reasons or he actually believes something to be true that he has been told is not and either one is an interesting development and new to the annals of presidential politics i mean let's let's just pause for a second because we we go through we cover a lot of things you know the president says controversial things other people respond to them we go back and forth but the president of the united states is alleging and alleging repeatedly and over and over again and now making it what appears to be a staple of his campaign rally speech that the Federal Bureau of Investigation was spying on his campaign for the express purposes of helping Hillary Clinton. He has said this over and over again. His crowds are reacting to it. There is not only no evidence that this happened, but we now have people on his side, allies of the president, who have had access to all of the information from the FBI on this, saying that it is baseless and it is not true. President of the United States making an allegation against the FBI, leading law enforcement organization in the United States, with absolutely no evidence, allegations which, as you point the two choices, he either knows are not true or doesn't believe it when the FBI tells him now that it's not true. And I think you have to place it into the the context of the way the president is presenting himself in, in these political forums and even in official forums. He is painting a, a picture of America that on one level is on the move and marching forward with uh, renewed peace and prosperity and strength and uh, economic success and new jobs and um, America being made great again. Uh, at the same time, he is suggesting that there are mortal threats to the republic posed from within. From within. From within. Enemies within. Enemies within the deep staters that he would suggest are populating still his Department of Justice and his FBI. Uh, and Democrats, 
uh, that he has um, portrayed as not just being for the wrong policies, but for the wrong side. Uh, Take a listen. This is another snippet from last night. This is what uh, what, uh, he had to say about the Democratic candidate there, Phil Bredesen, specifically about uh, what Phil Bredesen would do if he gets to Washington. He's a tool of Chuck Schumer and, of course... The MS-13 lover, Nancy Pelosi. So, John, uh, Nancy Pelosi is a lot of things. Do we have any evidence that she loves the, uh, the violent uh, uh, gang MS-13? Uh, Nancy Pelosi does not love MS-13. Okay. Uh, I'll go out and say that. Good. Good. Fair enough. Fair enough. You saw, I mean, th- th- I believe that to be based on um, Pelosi condemning the use of the word animals. Uh, that, that the president used to describe him as 13, that became an and, applause and line. That, and that's also an interesting thing, because if you look at the context of when the president said animals, it was it actually, he may have misspoken right. or mis- misunderstood, but he was not specifically talking about MS-13. It may have meant what he meant, but but that was not that was not in the sentence. That was not in the sentence that preceded it. It was not, he was talking about people coming over the border. But in the Trump version of reality right now, that is, uh, that all it is was him calling out violent street thugs as, as animals. And he's now using that as an applause line. That is, that is now part of the presidential repertoire on the campaign trail. You heard it last night. People are chanting People animals. People are chanting the word animals and applauding along the way when they hear Nancy Pelosi described as an MS-13 lover. Yeah, it's, um, I don't know, uh, we, we are in surreal times where we're all talking about it, just a single rally the president uh, gave in uh, in Tennessee, and you're forced to, as a journalist, go through and do rather extensive fact-checking yeah. of some of the biggest applause lines in the speech, which are either demonstrably false or entirely without any evidence to support them. That's an unusual position. <laughs> You know, you're covering the president of the United States. It is, and, and in some level, we've become used to it. And we've we've covered before various misstatements, and there were more than three thousand of them tallied up by the Washington Post in the first fifteen or sixteen months of the presidency. And they they're so they're so regular now in the sense that they come so frequently. But watching him in action again in Tennessee, and as you say, this will be the, the first of many or the, the a series of many of these type of things. He gets the crowd on his side. And if you ask those people in the crowd, do you believe what the president is saying? They say, darn right. They feel it. And it's, it's fueled in part by the fake news chants that you had even children engaged in in Tennessee, uh, and and largely by a president who knows what the crowd wants and is and is portraying a reality that isn't real, but may be real in the in his mind and in the minds of very many people who were inclined to to vote on his side. It is the age of untruth. It is the age of unreality, uh, and as always. Our role as journalists is to try to report on what the president is actually doing. Right. Um, these are distractions, but these are not distractions that are created by those of us who are covering him. And there are important things happening. Um, the president is pursuing what he is pursuing regarding North Korea. This may either end up as a colossal failure or a masterstroke of geopolitical genius. Um, but it is incredibly high stakes, incredibly important, and incredibly significant. And just since our last podcast, John, uh, this got canceled. 
uh, the, the, the summit. With oh North yeah, I'm Korea. sorry. I meant to bring uh, you up to I speed on say, that. Say, I mean, just to, just <laughs> if all you do is listen to our podcast, God bless you. But secondly, you missed a lot uh, it, because the president fired off a letter, uh, signed it, and sent it over, and said uh, that he was pulling out of the June 12th um, anticip- highly anticipated summit. Um, we're now learning that when he says it's off, it actually is part of the negotiating ploy, one would presume, because he did get, I mean, again, to, to his credit, and, and we may look back at all of this and say, wow, there was no other president who could have played this the way Trump did. And well, no other president would play it the way that he, 100%. That he did. 100%. Yes. Um, I mean, I thought that, I think we I think we talked about this in the last podcast. They, they said, they told us at the White House that every word of that letter was dictated by Trump himself. There was no way that that's one thing that we know was 100 percent true. There's no there's no other person that would have written a letter like that. Um, But but the North Koreans responded with a oh, we didn't mean it. We didn't mean it. You know, we really want to meet. I mean, it was an interesting it was an interesting discussion. So I know you want to weigh in on this. We've got to take a quick break. On the other side of that break, we will talk to somebody who uh, is a prominent figure in American politics who has actually been to North Korea more than once, somebody who has met with a North Korean dictator, somebody who knows what it is like to negotiate with the North Koreans when we come back. Brought to you by Indeed, used by over 3 million businesses for hiring, where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions, then sort, review, and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I am here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and start here. All right, welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. So, Rick, I ran into uh, Chief of Staff John Kelly late yesterday at the White House and just asked him point blank, is the summit really going to happen? And he said yes. Mm-hmm. Um, the president has said things are going very well. We'll see what happens. We have, we have a lot of activity going on right now. We have Mike Pompeo heading to New York to meet with the top negotiator on the North Korean side who is coming to New York. Somebody who, until the White, until the State Department recently lifted uh, the restrictions, would not have been allowed to travel to the mm. United States because he has been implicated in a whole list of terrible misdeeds by the North Koreans, including the hack of Sony. We also have a a team from the uh, administration at the DMZ meeting with North Korean counterparts on some of the technical uh, aspects of what kind of of any kind of a, an agreement or preliminary agreement that could come out of the summit and. Furthermore, we have a team in Singapore led by Joe Hagan, the Deputy Chief of Staff, to work on logistics for the summit itself. So there is a global push to get this thing back on for June 12th. The White House hasn't officially announced it's back on. Right. The last word is the letter saying Canceling it was canceled. It. Yes. So we'll see. Did you so, cancel your ticket? No, I have a ticket. I am flying over. Right. Uh, You're going um, whether there's a summit or not, right? I, you know, I've never been to Singapore. I've been throughout the region. Never been to Singapore. My ticket is also not refundable, <laughs> so um, so there's really not much of a reason to cancel it. But let's but let's get our guest on the phone. We're going to place a call to Governor Bill Richardson, of course, the former U.S. ambassador to the United States, former governor of New Mexico, former Energy Secretary, somebody that knows these issues uh, incredibly well. 
let's see. Can we, uh, tre- if Trevor Hastings there, can we try to get him on the phone? Trevor has got an amazing ability to, 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 to work the phones in our control room in New York. Governor Richardson. Yes. Uh, Jonathan Carl here with Rick Klein. Thank you for joining us. Glad, glad to do it, John. So let's let's establish. I, I want to ask you, obviously, about about where this is all going and where you think it should be going in terms of this on again, off again effort to have a summit with Kim Jong Un. But but I just want to establish for everybody: you have have this unusual relationship with North Korea. How, how many times have you have you traveled to North Korea? I've been there eight times, uh, and I've gone as an official envoy, and I've gone there unofficially, mainly to get political prisoners out, American pilots, and the remains of the Korean War soldiers. So those are basically my eight trips, along with one that I took with Eric Schmidt of Google. That was the last one about four years ago. So in 2005, I believe it was, you actually met with Kim Jong-il. Yes, uh, it was a very brief meeting. I mainly was negotiating with his foreign ministry and his uh, foreign minister. So as you watch this all play out, first of all, are you surprised at the, the, the way the North Koreans had played this, both the initial gambit of inviting Trump to the meeting and then that quick about face that they did after, after uh, the president canceled the summit and issued that extraordinary letter, suddenly the North Koreans were, you know, saying, no, 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 we really want to do this. We really want to do this. Are, are you, is this behavior, so, I mean, because I think you probably know the North Koreans better than 99.99999% of, of, of America. Are, are you surprised at how they have acted on, on all of this? No, I'm not surprised. The North Koreans, uh, they don't negotiate like we do. They don't believe in quid pro quos. They have their own vision of what they want, and it comes from the deity of uh, Kim Jong-un. The North Koreans are bombastic. Uh, Their insults to the vice president, their threats, uh, their statesmen by the foreign ministries, decrying the negotiations. That's typical North Korean behavior. Now, uh, what has underlied a lot of the North Korean attitude is that they have always desperately wanted a summit with the President of the United States. They always would tell me, you, the United States and us, we can negotiate uh, what's happening in the Korean Peninsula, not Japan, not China, not South Korea. So uh, their behavior is not uh, uncommon. What is interesting is how rapidly they realized that the summit was on the rocks. They had to recover, and so they went into high gear to try to recover that summit because they've always desperately wanted a summit with the President of the United States. You, you just said something right now, and I think you've said similar things in, in other interviews recently that I find really intriguing, that they don't think like we do. They don't negotiate like we do. What does that mean? How do they think? How do they negotiate? What does the, that, that, that goal that you see stemming from a deity of the, of the head of state, how does that play in? What, what are they after when they're, when they're negotiations that we don't really understand? Well, first of all, they think they're totally right, that their uh, interventions come from divine right, their leaders. So, therefore, everybody else is wrong. 
secondly, they are so isolated, they don't know how the international community and diplomacy and UN uh, uh, international collaboration works because they've been sanctioned. They've been so isolated. And third, they're, they're nonetheless very prepared. They're relentless. They don't believe in quid pro quos. One time I remember uh, saying, okay, well, we've done this, so it's time for you to do this. And their attitude is the only concession they're going to make is they're going to give me more time. They're going to give the U.S. more time to come to their conclusion. I mean, that's the way they think. But at the same time, because of their priority of having this summit with the president, and because I think Kim Jong-un has a vision for his country, which is maybe I trade nuclear weapons for economic growth. That's out there. and It seems that uh, that's what's driving him right now. He feels he's in his strongest position militarily, nuclear-wise. So now's the time to negotiate. And he wants a peace treaty with the United States. He wants sanctions lifted. But I think deep down he's not like his father, who was a rug merchant, who, you know, in exchange for this political prisoner, get President Clinton to come uh, give us uh, foreign assistance in exchange for a nuclear reactor. I think this man is more private sector oriented. He wants to build his economy. Uh, but we will see what uh, what he wants. But I will tell you that if he does move towards denuclearization, which I doubt, uh, he's going to want a big price from the United States, from Japan, China, from everybody on his economy. That's what he wants, I believe, in the end. Now, you set up a, a really interesting uh, hurdle for this all to clear. You, you say you doubt that he's going to move toward denuclearization. The president and the White House have said the goal of this summit is total, complete, irreversible denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. That, if they think they're totally right, that just doesn't sound realistic. That's right. That isn't realistic. But the summit still should happen, because if we get some kind of negotiating process that might lead long-term to a substantial denuclearization, curbing their weapons, freezing their weapons, missiles, nuclear uh, materials, nuclear exports, uh, chemical weapons to countries like Syria, uh, to rogue nations, to uh, international outlaws, some kind of curbing, freezing, uh, with full inspections, with timelines, that would be a good result of the summit. But, you know, the administration, if they continue with this full denuclearization, immediately irreversible, uh, that's good to have as a goal. But that's not, they should not expect that to happen. And I don't think they are. I think I've heard the president and, and Pompeo and others say, well, you know, we're ready to see a phased denuclearization. That means there's a little wiggle room and some daylight, which would be helpful in a final outcome. The fascinating thing, you know, there's so many fascinating things here, but is that Kim Jong-un seemed to be every bit as bloodthirsty as his father, maybe more so the way he took out his uncle, the way he poisoned his half-brother, uh, the way... Uh, the way he consolidated power uh, uh, after his father's death. He also, and maybe it's just because of the way things progressed and he didn't have much to do with, but on his watch, we saw the most aggressive and successful 
advancement of both their nuclear capability and of their missile program far more successful than than what we saw under his father. Uh, we saw those 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 nuclear tests going being to being from the equivalent you know the nuclear equivalent from duds to you know the equivalent of a hydrogen bomb. Uh, the missiles being little you know um, uh, much more successful, much more successful to the point where now we actually fear that he could reach uh, the mainland of the United States uh, with, uh, with with a missile, and yet. Here he is. Um, and you yourself raised the possibility. We don't know. You said you doubted it, but it's possible that he may be – I mean, forgive me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but I'd like to hear how you would, how you would define this. But he, if he is willing to do what you suggested he might be willing to do, which is to basically trade his nuclear program for economic prosperity, he would have to be a transformational figure. Um, somebody who is, you know, moving in an, in an entire, it's almost like Nicholas Ceausescu becoming Václav Havel. Um, <laughs> do, do, is that possible? And, and if it's so, what, what is driving him? What's your read on, 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 on what is making somebody go from being the guy that, you know, says, my uncle, boom, done, uh, to being the guy that's going to, you know, make an historic move? Right. Well, here's what I believe are his objectives, and, and they're consistent, I think, with his father and his grandfather. One, he wants to stay in power desperately. He wants to be secure. This is why he wants almost an assurance that we don't want regime change. Secondly, he wants a peace treaty so that we're not at war uh, from the Korean uh, War, the Armistice Days. He wants that as leverage to negotiate a reduction of the American presence with uh, South Korea, nuclear and conventional. Third, he wants sanctions off. I think the sanctions have hurt him, especially from China on energy, on oil, foodstuff, North Korean workers. Lastly, he wants to be a big international player. He wants to be the equivalent of the United States in Asia. Uh, he thinks he's better than China. He thinks he's better than South Korea and Japan in terms of military power. And then lastly, I think deep down he realizes that he's achieved almost all he can and will on his nuclear and missile capability. So he's at his strongest negotiating leverage. I don't believe he'll give up all his nuclear weapons because he'll end up probably, he thinks, like, Gaddafi or Saddam Hussein. Libya model, right. But he is willing to gamble in exchange for a private sector economy. He's not like his dad who wants food assistance, foreign aid. He said he wants economic uh, investments. I mean, when I went there with Eric Schmidt of Google and, and there was interest in the Internet, it didn't happen, but you could see the North Korean leadership excited about moving into the Internet uh, revolution, which had been limited to just the elite. So so I think it's more of a private sector aspiration that he wants for his country. I think the last point I want to make is, you know, we've underestimated this guy. Everyone thought of him as a bloodthirsty, young uh, bomb thrower. I think deep down he, he's a rational actor who's had a strategy. Now, is it going to evolve into something that... Uh, makes him a transformational figure from your question. 
We shall see. It depends on the results of the summit. But I think so far he's been underestimated. He's been making very positive diplomatic moves, like a chess game, talking to the Chinese, talking to the South Korean, getting the Chinese on his side, agreeing to the summit, and then uh, uh, initiating the summit with the president, and then reacting to the letter. You know, uh, I I don't believe the, the threats and the letter and you know, the on-off-again diplomacy is in our best interest. But uh, it didn't seem to bother Kim Jong-un. He, he has now sent his top spy, his top uh, lieutenant, to negotiate the terms of the summit with the Secretary of State. You know, so he's had a strategy, and we got to acknowledge that. So that, that does lead me to, to kind of flip the question to the other side and the other major negotiating partner here and the president. Oh, yeah, Trump, right? That guy. Yeah. So, Governor, do you... I've been intrigued by this throughout this this relationship, and it's it's been engaged in some tweeted threats and some bellicose language and, of course, the letter. Uh, we, we, we don't know, because the president won't confirm whether he's actually spoken directly to Kim Jong-un, but there's been a thought racing through my mind through all of this, Governor, that... Maybe they just get each other. Maybe they are either either directly or indirectly able to communicate at a, at a level that they understand and that they respect. And that when you say fire and fury and locked and loaded and my button's bigger than yours and all of the, the bellicose language that flies back and forth, that they still at a fundamental level understand what they are doing here. Is it possible, Governor Richardson, that, that you and a lot of people have underestimated President Trump in this? No, you know, I, I, I just don't believe that the president's tweets, his threats, his bellicosity, the mixed messages of the administration have been the driving force. Uh, I believe the driving force have been the president needing and wanting the summit for his success, for to get out of his domestic problems, and Kim Jong-un wanting, uh, wanting a... Uh, successful summit and wanting to move in a role as a great international leader, which is still very questionable. I give the president credit for accepting the summit. I've been involved in this issue a long time, and it's always negotiations from the bottom to the top. I think what has been needed is from the top to the bottom with two leaders who are very similar. They're dictatorial. They're impulsive. Uh, so the dynamic, a good dynamic of a potential agreement and a meeting uh, has been set. But no, I, I'm not going to give the president credit for uh, being disorganized and tweeting and having mixed messengers. I think what is very important now between now and the summit is he say to Secretary of State Pompeo, you take the lead, you negotiate the outcome. I'm going to keep my advisors, the vice president, the uh, national security advisor on the sidelines. This is your show, uh, but you direct it from me. Now, I'm not, I'm not optimistic the president's going to do this, but I think we need some discipline right now, some traditional diplomacy. Uh, I think some of that is happening, you know, with the meetings in the DMZ of our substantive people, uh, the logistical team. Uh, the worry I have is that we're going to say it's got to be June 12th. If it takes two or three weeks later, so what? That's okay. Do it right. Be prepared. And I want the president prepared. I want him to find a way to not just be substantively prepared, but take Kim Jong-un on the side. I've always negotiated with the North Koreans. You never make a deal with them 
straight up in the negotiating table, across tables with all your aides. You make the deals with them, release the prisoners, whatever, on the sidelines, walking with them at meals, uh, informally. That's when you make the deal, not sitting across each other when everybody's doing their talking points and they're you know, following their uh, delegation's leads. Uh, I think a personal relationship dynamic could happen between Kim Jong-un and the president. President should take advantage of that and take them aside or find a way to go on the sidelines and, and see if they can cement a real good deal. So uh, I know you have to go, uh, Mr. Ambassador, but but I, I think I hear you saying maybe, just maybe, Donald Trump is uniquely positioned to be the president that could get a deal of of, of this nature, historic, with. Kim Jong-un, maybe in fact the only one. I think it's doable. I think it's possible. I think he's on the verge of something good and important for our country. I don't like his foreign policy. I don't like what he's done internationally uh, with trade, with our European allies, with our Latin American allies, with the Iran deal, which I think is not helpful, especially in this Korean issue. But on North Korea, um, I have to give him credit for advancing in a situation that has never advanced as positively as it is now. However, his style, uh, his ego, uh, his uh, not having discipline with his advisors pauses me to think that uh, he may not achieve what could be achieved for this country and for the world. All right, I hate to do this to you, but give us your percentage chance that out of this summit comes a positive agreement. I'd say 60-40 positive. Wow. Wow. Um, Okay. I'd say 60-40 positive. Yeah, I think that uh, Pompeo realizes there's got to be some concessions. The concessions are in the arena of a phase denuclearization, step-by-step process, more around what the South Koreans have wanted. You take these nuclear steps, North Korea, in return, you get uh, some benefits, sanctions lifted, a peace treaty, maybe fewer military exercises with North and South Korea. Um, But I think what's very important is, one, speak with one voice, your advisors, Mr. President. Two, Build a personal trust relationship with Kim Jong-un. Three, don't neglect our allies like South Korea, who's bailed us out on this, and Japan, especially, who's, you know, fears a missile uh, into Tokyo. Get our allies together and find a way to uh, make China keep the sanctions. Uh, China's kind of slipping a little bit on that because they've got their own designs in the geopolitical world in Asia. And then if you get a good agreement, you know, just give everybody credit. Don't take all the credit. Just find a way to make this uh, good for the country. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. And and what I like, uh, especially like talking to you all, no matter what the subject, is that we can call you so many things. (laughs) Congressman, governor, ambassador, uh, or as you called yourself once, informal undersecretary for thugs. Uh, This is, uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. All right. All the best to you guys. Take care. Thank you so much. 
Well, uh, there you go. A little, uh, little credit for Donald Trump and a 60-40% chance of, of not just the summit happening, but producing a positive agreement. So Bill Richardson, who was quite a good baseball player in his day, uh, had professional aspirations. Uh, if your power hitter is up hitting 600 with the game on the line, <laughs> do you like the chances of, of making it happen? Uh, pretty, pretty remarkable. I, I, I do think what was telling there is, you know, he, he says he doesn't, he won't say he's underestimating Trump, right? He's not ready to give him credit for anything. But his admission to you that this is doable, this is possible. And that, that Trump might uniquely be the he guy. might be the guy. I mean, of all the, the people who yeah. could be in that, in that, in that Oval Office. It, it's, it's one of the fascinating things. I'll, to, I'll give you one thing, though. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah. But one reason why this could not happen under Barack Obama, I, I, I yeah. believe, is if Obama had accepted a meeting with Kim Jong-un, and had gone about it the way this is all happening and rushed into it. Could you imagine the fire and fury that you have heard, you would have heard from Capitol Hill? Sure. They would have restrained uh, certainly them. Republicans, been, yeah. but I bet yeah. a lot of Democrats, you know, uh, you know, meeting with this horrible dictator. I mean, just, just look what happened in the, in the Democratic primaries way back in 2008 when Obama raised the possibility to be willing to meet with Ahmadinejad of Iran. Oh, Bill Richardson and, was and, on that stage. Yeah. We should find that sound. Oh, we should, we should have gone back to that. Uh, yeah. But, I mean... You know, but 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 Trump's got this running room because you have, for better or worse, and maybe for most reasons it's for worse. You have you have a Republican Party that is willing to accept just about anything the guy does. Yeah, and and it is it is a fascinating piece because to go back to that rally in Tennessee and the, and the promise, the essential promise that he brought, which was that he was going to do things radically differently, uh, that he did not care what previous presidents have done or or how they've gone about their business. He was going to rip up that playbook and play his own Trump game. And it is just possible that there is no one else that could pull something like this off. And it is just possible that it ends in a in a in progress that means a more peaceful world. Uh, that is that is a remarkable piece of this. And you know, John, I, po- covering politics to me is 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 fascinating business. That's why I do it for a living. There's always levels to the game, and particularly with President Trump, he's operating on on different levels. And those levels mean that when he says something, it actually doesn't mean what it's what it what, what he says it is. Uh, when he cancels a summit, it doesn't actually mean that. When he says there's spies uh, in, in, in that were on his campaign, that actually doesn't mean that. But he's doing something, and he is operating at those different levels, and it it, it could blow up disastrously or it could just work out and we did the entire podcast without mentioning the words nobel prize so uh so <laughs> or that's, that's a that's a good thing that's a good thing all right uh, i want to uh, we we've got it we got to we got to go we'll be back soon maybe even before next week there's a lot going on uh special thanks to the entire powerhouse politics team uh trevor hastings the master executive producer uh pulling the strings up in up in new york avery miller angie yak elizabeth brown kaiser anna carl uh, thank you, and, and, and the entire team, and there are many, many more that contribute to this podcast. Uh, we'll, we'll run the credits at, at the end of the show. <laughs> uh, but thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week.